This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay review Blind by the Sundays with special guest Frank Anthony Polito, author of Lost in the 90s. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me again, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, we are on a roll here. Did you know that? I did know that. Well, we wait, are, what do you mean? Well, I mean, uh, season one, we had two guests the entire season that right. were not our friends. Uh-huh. There weren't people that you know we knew ahead of time and could cajole into spicing up our podcast. Could guilt into uh, guest, yes. guest hosting. Yes. But we actually, this season has been a, um, a bounty of riches of uh, new and exciting guests. We've had musicians. We've mm-hmm. had... We've had an author, we had a music video director, and joining us on this episode, we have a triple threat. We have an author, we have a playwright, and we have an actor. Jay, welcome to the show, and everybody out there listening, um, author of Lost in the 90s, a book we're going to be talking about, Mr. Frank Anthony Polito. Frank, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. Did I pronounce your name right, Polito? You did. Polito like Toledo, except awesome. with a P and a T and not a T and a D. That's a little Ohio humor there for you yeah. guys. I appreciate it's... it. And I, ha- I always have to ask because I am notorious for slaughtering uh, names on this show. So anytime I get an opportunity to correct it with the person, um, I will do that. So you suggested an album to us based on uh, this book that we were talking about, Lost in the 90s, as one of the um, your favorites from the 90s. Uh, and that album is Blind by the Sundays. Before we get into the book, can you talk a little bit about how you discovered the Sundays, where your appreciation for them came in in the 90s? Yeah, sure. I was actually thinking about that um, just a few minutes ago. It had to be summer of 90 uh, because I was reading my notes off of Wikipedia and they said the album was released in 90. So I have this distinct memory, summer of 90, I lived with my parents. I was going to uh, a college in Detroit, which I called the Live at Home College, Wayne State University. And every Sunday night, we would watch 120 minutes. And I remember seeing a video for uh, Here's Where the Story Ends, and that jangly guitar just totally reminded me of the Smiths and Harriet with the hair up and the black and white. And I was just, um, you know, I immediately like went out and bought it the next day at the local record store and then, you know, listened to it all summer and it was kind of my summer of 90 um, CD. Uh, Jay, where do the Sundays come into your, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Your viewfinder. Life? Your viewfinder. <laughs> when did when did they find, land on your radar? God, they're one of those bands that, you know, as I, as I sampled the catalog here, I knew several of the songs um, and I knew the name, just hadn't put the two together, really. So, I mean, I've always, I've been aware of the band uh, I guess since then, just not you know super familiar with uh, all the material, and you know got confused with a couple other bands. So really, I mean, the last couple weeks reviewing the record is when I really got on my radar. I will also add that when I said I went out and bought the CD, it was actually a cassette because oh. I had not. Yeah, I was gonna say yeah. that would have been early for CDs. Yeah, it was. I know. I knew a few people who had CD players Mm -hmm. but it was mostly like a big huge machine you'd have in your house and you didn't have it in your (laughs) house 
and they were super expensive yeah yeah they were like 17 bucks each and they came in that big long rectangle yeah and i would cut them out the cover and i would hang them on the door in my room once i eventually got the cds yeah i love those long boxes i used to stack them up in the closet i like kept them all i don't know why but i was just keeping them because they seemed so cool it's because you're a hoarder that's why (laughs) well one day i realized what am i going to do with these so i I ended up tossing them but it would have been cool to keep a couple of them like that I honestly can't say that I knew of the Sundays before the Summertime single, which was on their third album. I remember the video pretty well. I remember we were at the radio station, and I remember playing that single to death. Uh, College Radio was in love with that song. But I don't remember until much later going back and actually hearing the first album. And I'm pretty sure up until doing this show, I did not listen to the second album. So I was fairly unfamiliar. I teased a little bit about your resume, Frank. Can you tell us a little bit about your background in terms of, uh, I, I mentioned actor, playwright, author, leading up to this book? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm from originally from a suburb uh, of Detroit, which I use the reference 8 Mile now because most people have heard of that um, via Eminem. Um, the town I grew up in borders Detroit at 8 Mile. It's called Hazel Park. We refer to it as Hazel Tucky, which actually everyone else refers to it as Hazel Tucky. I've since sort of adopted it with pride. I came to New York uh, in 1995 to be an actor and after doing lots of off-off, off-off Broadway and some extra work on a, some soaps and in a few movies, Uh, I decided I needed to find a more lucrative career, so I decided I was going to become a playwright. Um, Yeah, so I have two useless (laughs) degrees. I um, went to Carnegie Mellon in in 2006. I got my MFA in dramatic writing and came back to New York and immediately started writing novels. Um, I was given the opportunity to adapt uh, a play that I wrote called Banfags into a novel and I published that in 2008 and then I followed with the following year with another one called Drama Queers and I thought well I've done the 80s both of those books were set in the 80s the late 80s sort of autobiographical about my growing up in the Detroit suburb suburb of Hazel Tucky and so I was like well I guess the next logical step is to do the 90s So I wrote this book called Lost in the 90s, started sending it out to agents because I didn't have an agent for the first two books and was slapped in the face with cold, hard reality and told that no one will want to read a book that is set in the 1990s. And I have way too many pop culture references in the story uh, on top of it. Obviously, the people who read those, who told me that had not read my first two books because they are pop culture galore and everyone who has read them that's what they enjoy about it. So um, after a year of my agent sending this new book out to all of the major publishers and getting the same rejection notes, um, I was like, you know, I'm just going to self-publish it. Amazon has this company called Create Space. You know, it's online. You just upload all your files, create a cover, and boom, I put it out there. And I really think, you know, the people who have read it, the reviews are good. And little by little, you know, I'm meeting folks like you who have an affinity for the 90s. And I'm just hoping that we can spread the word and people will check it out. I've read the book and I really enjoyed it. I I totally get 
the references to the 90s and I, I was you know enjoying that the whole way through. There's also a, a tie-in to one of the most important aspects of the 90s, uh, which is Kurt Cobain and his death. Prior to the book, were you much of a Cobain fan or was this something that in preparing to write the book that something you became more interested in as an aspect for the book? Actually, the latter. And I hope that, you know, when I say this, that people don't, you know, accuse me of using a tragedy like the death of Kurt Cobain to sell my book. But basically what happened in a nutshell was I started writing this in 2009 and I knew that it would take me about a year to write. And then by the time I found a publisher, it would probably not get published into, until 2012. And so then I said, well, the story I wanted to open with like a school dance in the spring. So I picked April and I looked at a calendar and I said a Saturday night, April 7th. I knew the kid was 18 and he was gonna go back 18 years, which was 94. I looked up what happened in April 7th of 94 and bam, it was the day before the world learned that Kurt Cobain had killed himself. And I just, I could not ignore that. And so that became a really important part of the story. Um, and I think, you know, it was serendipity or destiny or fate or whatever you call it. But, uh, and then in that research, I have now come to have a real affinity for the man that was Kurt Cobain. And I'm, I have a lot of regret that back in the day, I didn't appreciate him for who he really was. I think people are starting to rediscover. I think people had sort of gotten really tired of quote unquote grunge. Mm -hmm. And once that all died, people kind of buried it. And I think there's sort of a little bit of a, I don't want to say a grunge resurrection, but, you know, Soundgarden getting, Soundgarden getting back together and people. And Pearl Jam did a 20 year anniversary concert. Yeah, recently. exactly. And their, their video that came out celebrating their anniversary. I think there's, it's, it's sort of becoming now the time where we can sort of revisit that without, I know Jay and I as music fans kind of went through a period where we didn't want to listen to anything grunge because we had sort of lived through that. Yeah. And it was like, we were looking for anything that didn't sound like that. I, Jay, am I speaking out of yeah, turn for you? Total, total oversaturation. You know, yeah. so it was just, you needed a break, but I do find it really odd or not very wise of publishers to say right now that they wouldn't be interested in a book that you know contains 90s nostalgia and the pop culture references from that because it would seem to me that you know those people are coming of to the age of where you know they're looking for nostalgia and like want to rediscover things that maybe they had you know set aside for a while because it was too near and now there's there's some distance it's starting to feel to me like now is the time you know when you start to see some of that come back and, um, you know, relive that and movies, you know, movies and books and things, TV shows might be starting to be set in their early nineties as a time and place that we can kind of have perspective on now. So yeah. I, I find that re really interesting. I think in their defense, one of the problems with may have been my positioning of the book, because my first two books were considered adult novels and the main readers, the folk, the target audience were, people in their 30s and early 40s who were teenagers in the 80s. And when I wrote this mm -hmm. book, I pitched it as a young adult novel. And I think the publisher's concern was, well, kids today aren't going to care about a time period that they were either just born into or that they missed. Um, but, I, but I'm actually meeting a lot of um, 
you know, high schoolers, people actually born in 1994 after Kurt Cobain died, who they treat him the way that like we treated, you know, James Dean or someone like that who mm -hmm. we never shared this earth with and yet we still had an obsession with kind of a thing. So yeah, I do think, I, I feel like publishing in general, not to be whatever, but I think the people who work in it are a little on the geeky side and they don't quite know what's hip and cool, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> you know. Gotcha. Well, I don't know if you could call this band hip or cool, but there's definitely something unique about them, and that's the Sundays. That's my awkward segue into getting into the <laughs> the album we're reviewing tonight. Uh, but well before, done. yeah, thank you. Before we do that, we have to do the history of the band. History of the band. The Sundays formed in London, England in the late 1980s. I don't have an exact date on that. Thank you, Wikipedia and All Music, for not being specific. When vocalist Harriet Wheeler met guitarist David Goverin, I believe you pronounce it, at Bristol University, they fell in love, moved in together post-university, and started writing as a duo. In 1988, they enlisted fellow Bristol classmates Paul Brindley on bass and Patrick Hanna on drums and officially formed The Sundays. They played several shows and released a demo tape, which got them a positive response, and they signed to Rough Trade Records in the UK and the short-lived DGC in the United States. Their first single, Can't Be Sure, was released in 1989, followed by the debut album, Reading, Writing, and Arithmetic, in January of 1990, it reached number four on the UK chart and number 39 on the Billboard 200. And can I the correct you there for just one second? Because I, I was afraid you were going to do that. It's actually Reading writing and arithmetic because Harriet, I believe, has a tie to Reading, England. I did oh, not sneaky. But I learned that after the fact. That's not my fault, people. That that one is just a <laughs> cultural difference. No, no, but I wanted to, uh, you know, show my my real knowledge there. Excellent. They saved us too you because did. somebody would would have busted us on that. And yeah. <laughs> later on down the road, so we like to get that cleared up during the episode. Yes. Excellent. Unfortunately, in 1991, Rough Trade Records went bankrupt, so the band then signed to Parlophone. Their second album, Blind was released in October of 1992 and the following year the band toured continuously and this is something I find very interesting. In 1994 the band went on vacation together in Thailand and decided to go on hiatus. You know, hear of a lot of bands going on vacation together and then going on a hiatus but that's that's the size for you. I guess the yes. vacation didn't go well. I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it went too well. They were like, Was we're just like staying Hangover on vacation. Was it like Hangover 2? I don't know. I haven't seen Hangover 2 yet. Uh, yes. Yes, it is. Uh, Wheeler and Goverin got married, had a baby, and then built a home recording studio in which they started to record their third album, Static and Silence, Silence which was eventually released in September of 1997. The band simply stopped being they didn't break up they didn't officially do anything they just stopped making music wheeler and govern had their second child in 1999 and they've never been heard from again no uh i didn't follow up on 
what Harriet Wheeler has been doing. I I hope she's been singing with some other people, but nothing officially that I could find. Um, as always, the history of the band has been brought to you by us. If you would like to sponsor the history of the band, please visit digmeoutpodcast.com. And if you don't want to support us, you can turn off the show now. I don't know why you're listening if you don't want to support <laughs> us. Go to hell. Yes, go to hell, people. And thanks for listening. Buy a t-shirt. So we didn't get any Facebook feedback on this one. However, we did get a Twitter response on this album. Dirty Gert, our old friend Dirty Gert on uh, Twitter, said he saw, this is what his quote, the first New York show the Sundays did, they ran out of songs. For the encore, they apologized and played their hit a second time. That's not really feedback. It's sort of a fact or a a historical (laughs) remembrance, but... It's something. We thank Dirty yeah. Gert, who has chimed in many a time. We're talking about their second album, which is Blind, which is what you would not consider their hit album. Their first album had a hit on it. Their third album had a hit on it. This is what we call the sophomore album. The sophomore slump. Is, well, mm-hmm. is it a slump? That's well, the that's, question. That is the question. Frank, let's start with you. Well, like I, I think I told you when I first contacted you, I would always say like, oh, that's my least favorite of their albums. But, you know, then I said, but, you know, when I actually actually listen to it, I'm like, oh, no, I really, you know, this isn't so bad. I like it. To me, they're kind of, dare I say, all the same, which is fine to me. You know, it's not like anything drastically different where you don't even recognize it. But when I actually went in and read the lyrics for these songs, I don't know what the hell any of them are about. You know, they are so like poetic and second level and ethereal and not, it is not Adele, okay? It is not someone like you where you get a story of a, I felt so ignorant. I was like, oh my God, I've been listening to this CD for 20 years and I have no idea what they're singing about. I, I, don't, I don't get it. So does that make it good? You know, it's like Shakespeare or does that just mean it's poor writing? I don't know. I still enjoy it. Like. On a level of the way it sounds, I like it. So I don't know. I would be curious to, you know, hear what you guys have to say since you know a lot more about music than I do. Jay. Oh, I don't, I don't know about that, but we definitely have opinions. Uh, we like to throw them out. Yeah, I mean, they have a sound for sure. And that was one of the things that I spent some time just really dissecting. And the thing I think that defines it is overall production. So the drums are seem really distant. I noticed mm-hmm. that, yeah. They're really far away, and that's that's challenging for me because I'm a big drum guy, and sort of I need that like, I need to feel that impact and that like, that sense of urgency, and just even the fact that they don't quite sound like a person's playing them; they sound mechanical or like a drum machine. Kind of made it difficult for me as well. One of the things I did like about it though was that um, the acoustic guitar that's mixed in all the songs it almost becomes like a percussion instrument, and then the two electric guitars i don't they, do they have two guitar players they just have two one player, guitar player so there's like he must do some overdubbing and play two parts from time to time so you get this really cool interplay between you know the drums and the acoustic guitar are really locked up and sort of doing a, the rhythm and then you you have this interplay between the two guitar uh parts that are actually really good and the tone for a clean tone is is uh, is um is actually pretty pretty interesting and then the bass we found, I think we've talked a lot about in recent episodes, the bass player in this band really does a lot of the, the heavy lifting. At times, he I felt like he was 
kind of overplaying a little bit. You know, he's a huge part of the, the sound of the band. Um, I really think that the takeaway for me was what he's doing on bass is um, really plays off the vocal quite a bit. And I think that was my biggest letdown with this album is that vocally it's very, very safe, sort of middle of the road, um, especially on the, some of the songs that are faster. It seems like she kind of lets the music kind of take over and just sort of falls back a little bit on a couple of the songs where it gets a little bit slower. You, I can at least appreciate uh, the tone of, tone of her voice. So like track five on earth. can at least get start to get a, a feel for you know what her voice is like because she opens up and is a little bit more uh shows a little bit more range sings a little bit louder shows a little bit more emotion it might be just because there's more space there because the you know the song's a little quieter and there's less going on from a, a guitar and bass standpoint and i really wish she did that more you know overall i i think there's an interesting sound here i just think it's very much the same thing so once you hear the first song it's basically like that song 12 more times um mm. there's not a ton of race there in terms of songwriting mm. i'm gonna have to disagree with you there jay i what? i don't i don't think that this is the same song 12 times or did you guys get the 12 track version with wild horses or the 11 track version i have both i have both okay i have the, I have the 12 track because i i was What's listening this? The 11-track version is the UK version, and the 12-track is the US version. Right. Uh, which I had the UK version. So I, I had heard the Wild Horses cover before, so that wasn't a big deal. But I don't think that this album really is all that same. It's samey in the, in, the, in the terms of the production. It has a very late 80s, early 90s British, like you mentioned, distant drum. It sounds, there's a lot of reverb on it. It sounds, it sounds like it's in another room being played. You know, you start out with that first song, I Feel, which has, it starts out and has this lilting, descending vocal melody, and it's very fey. It's, it's kind of sucks you in as being kind of quiet and melodic. And then there's this blast of guitar a minute 40 into it that sounds like it's off a of My Bloody Valentine album. It is, it's a, it's a, the loudest thing on this album. She kind of matches it after that blast of guitar. Instead of the melodies going down, she starts ascending all of her melodies, and it's a really nice compliment um, to the to the the ballsiness of the guitar in that first song.
And I kind of feel like they play off of that first song on every other song in terms of either bringing the mood down, bringing the tempo down, or bringing it up. I understand that I think what you're hearing with regards to her vocal is restraint. I think she could very easily oversing this album. But if you read the lyrics, this is a really angry record. I don't know what happened to them in between the first and the second records. If there was some sort of... I know that there was a lot of issues with regards to... They took a lot of time, according to the article I read, that to make this record, they were kind of perfectionists. Uh, they almost spent almost like a full year in the studio making this record. But there are a lot of... Says that their um, label, Rough Trade, went bankrupt. Yeah. So I think there was some, you know angriness and bitterness about that whole thing but i i agree with you that it's angry and some of the words adjectives that i wrote down you know fit into that but i also think like i don't know if they were married at the time but they were in love so like how 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 wrong could their life have possibly been you know i think their anger was directed outward um god made me is a really good song uh, both lyrically and musically it has a really strong melody for the chorus but the lyrics are what really nailed it for me she says god made me that's what they told me before who knows what they'll say today because god made me for his sins imagine my eyes when i first saw we can do what we want this is a person who is angry at organized religion this isn't Sinead o'connor territory but this is someone who's saying i don't believe what you've told me and i'm and i'm finally seeing for myself what's real not something you would find in a pop song in the early 90s from yeah. what you would consider a pretty, you know, lightweight musical band. They're not this isn't Rage Against the Machine or Ministry or something like that. I mean, this is a it's a pretty quiet band. there are other jabs at pop lyrics um track four which has some really cool guitar lines in that song the second verse goes peace love now what don't go telling me you had them almost a shot at like i don't know if it was a direct shot but it reminded me of peace love and understanding by you know nick lowe and then elvis costello like basically taking a shot at these hippie-ish ideals that you know growing up in the 80s in the UK, I don't know what that was like. You know, you hear stories of, you know, working class areas versus the more posh, quote unquote, areas. Um, I don't know where they were from exactly, but I can understand people. You know, this is a band that was heavily influenced by the Smiths, and yeah. the Smiths had a lot of anger in their lyrics. And I'm wondering if, you know, they let loose a little bit on the lyrical territory, or on the lyrical front, with regards to this record. They don't have the. Um... I don't I guess I don't hear like the life that I hear in the Smiths like I don't hear the 
the light or the dark aspects of the Smiths in this band. They're sort of like in the middle, at least on this album. That's that's kind of what I'm struggling with. Like, so, okay, if I, I've, you know, it's it's pretty difficult to understand half the time what she's saying, at least for me. So me if too. I don't, if I don't understand the lyric, and the darkness isn't being communicated either through the vocal or the chords or the music, then it's not connecting for me, I guess, unless it's just supposed to be ironic, you know, in that. <laughs> You know, they don't sound dark, but yet the lyrics are dark. I mean, I guess if yeah, I read it... It's kind of like maybe... that thing I always say, like, not to get off topic, but when I was younger, there was this French pop song that I really liked, and I thought it was all upbeat and happy and whatever, and I took it to my French teacher, and I asked him if he translated it to me, and he said, absolutely not. That is the darkest, most, what, you know, and I feel like this, a lot of this stuff is, if you didn't know English and you just listened to it, you'd think it was this peppy, upbeat kind of stuff, at least on the up-tempo songs. And then mm -hmm. once you look at the lyrics, like I've finally done recently, you're like, wow, this is some really serious stuff. And there's some moments of, of energy, you know, that that I did like, like track eight, what do you think? Mm -hmm. So it has some dynamics and some up and down. wild horses like you get a chance to you know just because they're covering somebody um there's some space in that song that again helped me appreciate her vocally and understand vocally what you know what she's capable of and connect with her a little bit more because that song you know there's strumming and then the strumming stops and there's a line and the strumming comes back and um i don't think there's any drums in, in their version of it and th there's some moments there where i can kind of start to connect but i think overall and tim i don't know if you noticed this but I think they use 6-8 for the entire album. I could be wrong here, but I think every song is in 6-8, which is like, that's a lot of 6-8. I mean, you just you kind of get locked into this. And then the tempos don't very much, you know, very much either. So I think that was another thing for me that whereas I start to feel like I'm listening to the same song over and over and over again. I, th I think there was quite a bit of that swing beat. Um, mm -hmm. Like a song like Love is definitely not 6-8. I, I thought that was... Definitely a four four, and they had a very Johnny Marr guitar line picking part in the in the chorus of that song.
I guess the thing that that won me over overall on this record is that it has a mood to it. You're talking about the light and the dark of the Smiths. I think they do hit like a sort of a middle ground there, which may not work for some. But for me, I put this record on. I kind of the kind of wash over me. If it had had more light and dark, it would have sprung out and it would have been more jarring. Where I think that this hits like a nice groove and it stays in that pocket for the whole time. And it's not really, it's not a, it's not like a samey, every, th- every song sounds the same like that Wendy's record. There's much more diversity and it's much better vocally than that. I think she does some really interesting stuff with her vocals and the way she phrases lines um, in, the, in the way that she will double herself, but then she'll slightly change the double or she'll do a counter melody to herself. The Medicine, the, the last track, there's a really cool counter melody that she does yeah uh in the chorus of that song so yeah, I wish she did that more <laughs> yeah I, 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 it's not I a perfect like the, album uh, i'm not saying it's I like a perfect the album. phrasing i like the phrasing I, I do like the way that she phrases i think it's fairly unique I, you know at times you could argue she's sort of doing a female morrissey but I, I like some of the phrasing um i just wish there was more inflection you know i think that's what i keep coming back to on on at least her vocally well you know? let me ask you guys this because we, we don't do this anymore but when we used to buy cds or tapes or vinyl i was the type of person where if there was a lyric sheet the first thing i would do is sit down with the record and read the lyrics along to the record i'm i was a lyric junkie were you guys that way yeah i love liner notes you know i loved having that's why like even today i still want to buy the cd because i want the booklet you know instead of the digital download you don't get that stuff i mean i guess there's ways to get it but but yeah. I would do that. But I also think this part of what, for me, when I first listened to this CD or tape, it was I was in college, and the only time I really listened to music then was when I was in my car. So I think mm-hmm. it would just kind of be on, and it would kind of just wash over me, and I wouldn't didn't pay attention to the lyrics as much on this particular one. That, that was a uh, cassettes were were funny in that way. Like you would just leave them in the car forever. And you would always just, you know, just get in and just whatever was in there, you just leave it in there. You, I, I just remember listening to a lot of albums way more than I ever would have any other way just because, you know, the tape was in there and I didn't want to change it. And it would just play on a loop. So that, that's kind of funny that, you know, experiencing albums that way the first time as compared to experiencing it now where, you know, you know, shoot on Spotify, you have basically every song that's ever been recorded at your fingertips and can change on a whim. So it's just kind of a completely different time. Or a lot of times now you have it actually in your ears on the headphones. So at least mm. you're a little more conscious of what you're hearing as opposed right. to you're just driving along and you're in the car with people and you're talking and um, you don't pay as much attention. I was the type of person that was going to, I always read the lyrics first. So I always, once I did that, I always had a good idea of what was being sung because I, I made it a point to read those lyrics right off the bat. And I don't do that anymore, so I actually have to... Like, I listened to this album probably eight or ten times over the last couple of weeks, and including I, I actually listened to it in the car over the weekend, but I didn't know what the lyrics were. I was hearing, you know, words here and there, but today I actually went and listened to the album while I read the lyrics, and it became so crystal clear what she was singing, and not only what she was singing, but the tone of what she was singing. Because it does sound like a very pretty pop album, yeah. When you're when you don't know what the lyrics are, and when you actually read them, it becomes a much a much different listen. But I hate to read. Well, you do hate to read. I'm yes. a designer. I like visual things. I like 
I opened up the liner notes and I would look at the photos and maybe I would read the thank you lines looking for like obscure references and funny jokes and stuff. <laughs> yeah. So you're looking so for the inside jokes. Yeah, I don't I don't know. You would listen to Joe oh, Satriani so album, so there's no lyrics. So this album is for readers. We're not talking about this isn't the most advanced lyrical uh class in the world here. I mean, these are this is a pretty I hear what you're saying. Oh, okay. there's been a couple albums like that where I when you sit down and actually read the lyrics along with it, you definitely get a whole new perspective for for what's going on. So, I I get you. Anybody, anybody have any last thoughts on this record before we move on into the judgment section? I was uh, just going to throw out some of the bands that they, I guess, get compared to or were influenced by or, you know, peers of, you know, Susie and the Banshees. And, oh, the I was reading and, a lot about them being compared to the Cocteau Twins, and I had never yeah. really thought about that mm-hmm. until I read that. Um, yeah. Because there's a but lot I, of places I, she's singing something and it's not really lyrics or maybe it is and you're not sure and they're not on the lyric sheet. So mm-hmm. I could see where that comes from. But it came off to me closer to something like 10,000 Maniacs or Edie Burkell or something along those lines. Uh, you know, that's just my completely not knowing the lyrics, not being super familiar with this band. That that was my impression of, to me, how it how it came across. I, I didn't get the darkness, like I mentioned, sort of the, you know, the drama that all those other bands have. I sort of got more of the middle of the road that you would get with like 10,000 Maniacs. So that would be my, my final comment on the album. Let's move into the judgment section. The sweet, tasty judgment. Let's rate this album. Would you rate it a worthy album? A better EP? Meaning you only think maybe five or six songs are worthy? Or a decent single? Jay, let's start with you. A decent single. Whoa! I don't know about that. <laughs> hey, we each get a, an opinion here. You get an opinion. Jay goes with decent single. Frank? Uh, the first choice was, wor- you said worthy? Worthy album. You loved the whole album all the way through? I do think it's a worthy album. I, there's not one track on it where I say, oh, I don't like this, and I skip to the next one. And I think maybe because I'm a little bit more familiar with them than you guys are. Um, I have not listened to the first one or the third one recently, but I sort of get the feeling like the first one was very poppy, and then the second one they said, let's try something a little more, dare I say, adult, even though they were like 25 years old. And then I don't think it worked well with the critics or the fans, and then the third one they kind of went back to that poppiness. So I think sort of artistically this one might even be better because, you know, it's not like Adele, a story song where anyone can grasp onto it not that i'm saying music should be exclusive or anything but i do think it's a little bit more artistic than maybe the first or the third and i think you know if anyone knew here's where the story ends and they didn't know this and they heard this now they i think they would still enjoy it so you're going with worthy album yeah i think so i'm in between i i highlighted seven of 11 songs that i would put into my itunes mix for future listen um, I guess that makes it an EP, although, as we joke, that could be a Rush album from the 70s. I don't think lengthwise it would make it that far, because this is actually a pretty short album. A lot of the songs clock in at 243, 223, 237, 357, 329. So it'd probably only be about 25, 27 minutes for a seven-song album. So probably be I'd probably go with better EP, although I could probably squeeze one more song on there to take it to eight. 
Um, but I, I found myself really liking this quite a bit. Cocteau Twins, you guys mentioned that earlier. Some of the other bands that I, I read got mentioned. Obviously, Mazzy Stars is one of them. They almost seem like the darker, more droney, I guess, version of the Sundays. Some would say the more critically favorite version yeah. of the Sundays. Um, the Cardigans was a band that I kind of heard. Uh, not necessarily the pop stuff like uh, the earlier stuff, but some of the some of the later albums have a little bit more melancholy to them. And then Ten Thousand Maniacs that got mentioned as well. In terms of modern bands, who would you say that this band compares to, or that that people might find interesting? I had a couple of out there ideas for if somebody was a fan of, say, Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift. <laughs> <laughs> That's no, it. I actually, uh, I actually thought of Beach House. I don't know if you guys are familiar with them. They have, I believe, a new album coming out this year, but they have like a dreamy pop, like '60s pop, well, earlier stuff, um, dreamy, dark, hypnotic kind of sound to a lot of their stuff. Female singer Cat Power was a artist that I kind of thought of. Not necessarily all of her stuff, but some of it. Any bands that you guys? Or artists I actually, that you guys... I actually really can't think of any because, to be perfectly honest, now that I don't live in Detroit and I don't have a car to listen to music in, I don't really listen to a lot of new music. I'm always like going back to the 80s or the 90s stuff. So now I, I can't even begin to think of like what might even compare. Um, you know, I, kept, I mentioned Adele a few times because she's so everywhere, but, you know, nothing, nothing like that. Right. Jay. Did you say... Um... Lana Del Rey or something like that? No, she's not nearly as light. Her stuff is yeah. almost is so super melodramatic and melo- heavy. yeah, melodramatic and <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. There's no quasi hipster swearing thrown in for no reason. <laughs> no Axl Rose references. Yeah. I, I, I do I guess think that's... it's kind of a, well, we talked about this earlier when we first got in touch with you. It was sort of a period of music that sort of went away once Nirvana came along and grunge and the sound changed. And, you know, I mentioned some other Manchester bands, as I called them, that I really, really liked that sort of disappeared once the tone of the popular music became harder and darker and more male driven i guess you well know? i kind of feel like this would have been a lilith fair band but i feel like lilith fair got murdered in the late 90s uh yeah the, by, there were by, a lot of uh female fronted or totally fe- all female bands in the mid to late 90s but they tend to be more i guess folk oriented so kind of what you're saying tim with the, the lilith fair well if you think about lilith fair so you got like your sarah mclaughlin's and you know liz fair cheryl crow you know, uh, bands of that nature. Yeah, it's a little bit more folky, Lannis a little bit Morissette. more poppy. Lennis Morissette. Uh, I'm trying to think of some other ones that were... You probably should just yeah. Google Lilith Fair for <laughs> the list of all the people who played that. Um, and I feel like the Sundays would not have been out of place, you know, playing the side stage or opening, playing the early afternoon at Lilith Fair. They definitely were not on the same level as Sheryl Crow or Sarah McLachlan in the 90s in terms of popularity right. in the United States. But I feel like that whole thing went away, and, and it kind of died. In the, I don't know when the last little affair was. It maybe was into the 2000s. I don't think it was. But I kind of feel like once the festivals got a little more new metal and skate punk oriented with like the Warp Tour 
and Ozfest and stuff like that. It seemed like Lilith Fair just sort of disappeared, and it kind of killed. Yeah, I even, think it kind of killed that vibe for a lot of artists. I don't think yeah. you get a lot of. It seemed like the 2000s became soul revival for a lot of female artists. Yeah. With yeah, Amy, yeah. Amy Amy Winehouse and you know that sound Duffy and yeah um, th- those artists. Although you know the Donnas did well in the early 2000s, so it wasn't completely. But th- this sort of band, this sort of light pop, definitely got killed off. I mean, I can't. Th- there's really nobody that's doing what they or I mean, Mazzy Star were doing. I mean, even if you go with like a PJ Harvey or a Bjork or something. I mean, those are all not exactly. Right. youngsters <laughs> no so i mean if you're truly saying like okay bands right now you know younger yeah there's not much there i mean even if you look at some of the lighter stuff that's becoming more popular now like grizzly bear or something like that i mean it's it's mostly like i guess more beach boysy or something like they're still it's still distant even though it's kind of slow and atmospheric and, and moody it's it's not from the same um it's not from the same school i guess or the same point of view Actually, the only other female artist that just popped in my not artist, but fronted band was Sleigh Bells, but they don't sound anything. Yeah, like Sundays. Right. Vocally, Please actually, step. she's not far off uh, in terms of that like higher register, wispy sort of vocal. It just happens to be over a punishing drum machine and metal guitar. Yeah. Well, of, let, uh, my first point was about the drums, and it's like you don't hear anybody with drums like that anymore. Like drums no. got to be like in your face. <laughs> Like even if the like mu- musically everything stayed the same with the, with his band, the if they were a band now, the drums would be totally different. Yeah. So that's definitely a, a something of the early '90s, the, yeah. the way that those are produced. We have a conclusion on the Sundays. This is our first crack at the Sundays. I think we might be revisiting them at some time in the future. I would like to tackle uh, definitely one of their poppier albums to see how that compares to this because I haven't really gotten into those so maybe in 2012 no not 2012 maybe in 2013 or 2014 we'll come back and uh maybe frank will come back and we'll discuss another sunday's album yeah i would love to let's talk about uh your places on the internet where people can find you one would be the facebook or as um sean parker said just facebook that's at lost in the facebook.com backslash lost in the 90s Yes, that's a page for the book. You can page for the book. Read about the book, and I try to include lots of little '90s posts about you know what's going on today, anything '90s related, all of the '90s comebacks there, and then there are links where you can find the the book. As and well. it's available uh, uh, paperback and Kindle at Amazon, and it's available for your Nook. If you have a Nook, if you're one of the five people that have a Nook. You can go get it for your Nook at Barnes and Noble. Jay, do you know anybody who has a Nook? <laughs> I don't. I really don't. I know a couple of uh, Samsung Galaxies and Kindles, and obviously tons of iPads. But no yeah, Nooks. we have a Kindle in our household, which is actually how I read Lost in the '90s was via a Kindle. So uh, I highly suggest picking it up. And then also you can follow Frank on Twitter at. Yeah, I don't tweet a lot, but you know, I'm I'm there every once in a while. It's a uh, Fa Polito. Yes. You you have a web page, but that just redirects to your Facebook page, correct? Yeah, I used to do a site, but I, you know, Facebook is like taking over the world, so it, they just Michael, bought Instagram for a billion dollars. So 
<laughs> yeah, I saw I saw something about that. Um, I remember I was I got on Facebook in 2005 when I was in grad school, and all the undergrads were Facebooking, and nobody outside of Carnegie Mellon that I knew had any idea what it was. And now look at it. Oh, very cool. Well, I don't you, I don't, I don't you, know if it may be cool, but it's just. Uh, you were what are, Facebook what is 2005 in, is pretty cool. We yeah, that's an early adopter. With, with MySpace. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I had a, I had a, um, a, a network, Carnegie mm-hmm. Mellon. People don't have networks anymore. Um, right. So yeah, my uh, www.frankanthonypolito, that will take you to my personal uh, Facebook. Excellent. Frank, thank you so much for joining us. This was a lot oh, of yeah. fun. And Thanks for having me and giving me the opportunity to look at this um, disc 20 years later and see you know things that i never saw before I'm absolutely at, i'm afraid to look at static and silence now because i think it's up <laughs> it could be like dark and suicide. <laughs> uh-huh. that's the downside it's, to doing this show we found it's actually a death themselves. metal album <laughs> yeah your memory your everything changes when you sit down with sort of a critic's ear and a pencil in your hand and have to go to work on an album that you otherwise just thought was fine and in, in loved so i know where, where you're coming from on that yeah. Uh, and before we go, and I don't know if you want, you might want to edit this out from the actual podcast, but um, I do have two copies of the book to um, give away to your listeners. So, oh, you know, do it however you do it, and then send me the names and addresses, and I'll um, send them off. After this episode airs, we will hook up our Twitter followers with a contest, and we will announce that when the time comes. Stay tuned, and you can win a copy of Frank's book, Lost in the 90s. Thanks, Frank. We uh, we appreciate you um, offering that up. Oh, no problem. Thank you. That's it, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, if you liked this episode, we hope you did, because we enjoyed uh, providing it for you free of charge. Uh, we would like you to take the time, 30 seconds at the most, head on over to iTunes and leave us a little positive feedback. Help us crawl out of the gutter that we are currently in. I think we're ranked... Uh, number one billion and three out of one billion and four <laughs> podcasts. So if you can help nudge us up uh, into the top 180 million, that gets us a possibility of adding um, uh, some sort of a front page thing. I'm not sure. I think that's how the math works out. Basically, so, if Apple realizes you exist, yeah, you exist. You you yeah. then really exist. Help us go public. We're going to offer up shares of stock once yeah. this thing. And um, then Jay and I can finally retire. So thanks again. Thanks, Frank. Thanks, Jay. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Want to leave feedback? Join the conversation at digmeoutpodcast.com for links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed. While you're there, support the podcast by visiting our donation and merchandise pages. And thanks for listening. Yeah.